please take your Bibles. We're going to open this morning to two places, so don't let that scare you. First, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 10, which will be our main text, and then also flip over to Psalm chapter 2. All right, so read, uh, go to 2 Samuel 10 for our primary text, and then go to Psalm 2 for our introduction. Um, as you go through the life of David, there are places where the life of David connects with Psalms, and we're going to see this all over the place as David wrote many of the Psalms. And so this morning, there is a connection between our episode in Psalm 10, um, sorry, our episode in 2 Samuel 10, with what is happening in Psalm 2. And so most of the time, we take Psalm 2 as a prophetic psalm, a messianic psalm, and it is. It's pointing to a future time when Jesus will come and conquer, but it also, also reflects a, a specific time in David's life as he's dealing with international crises. And so what we see in 2 Samuel 10 is Psalm 2 in action in history. So let's read, I'm going to read Psalm 2 so you get a picture of what's happening. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so turn over now to 2 Samuel chapter 10 as we work, as we work through uh, my sermon this morning. I'll read the text as we go through it. My title this morning is Refusing the Kindness of God's King. Refusing the kindness of God's King. That's what you're going to find in 2 Samuel 10. So I'll read this text as we work through my points. I have four of them. We're going to begin with first, the kindness of God's King. The kindness of God's King. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said... I will deal loyally or faithfully with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt faithfully or loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Now there are several contextual issues that need to be considered as we come to this text. Okay, First is the connection of chapter 10 with chapter 9. Now, two weeks ago, we studied chapter 9, where David showed his faithfulness and kindness, the Hebrew word hesed, for covenant faithfulness. David showed faithfulness and loyalty to Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. 
Now, 2 Samuel demonstrated how God's king David would implement a domestic policy of faithfulness and righteousness even to those who were considered his enemies. This is David's domestic policy. I'm going to show faithfulness and kindness to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, because I made a covenant with his father, even though Saul sought to kill me. This is very much, again, as I argued there, a picture of Jesus offering faithfulness and kindness to undeserving rebels like us. We are all Mephibosheth. Crippled, lame, broken enemies that God shows kindness to. So that's the first connection. Second, we learn here in the first few verses of chapter 10 that Hesed, covenant faithfulness, is also David's foreign policy. As he desires to show kindness, it's the same word there in your text, Hesed, he's going to show loyalty and faithfulness to the Ammonites when their king Nahash dies and his son Hanun takes his place. Now this is incredibly surprising, as surprising as it was for him to show kindness to Mephibosheth, it is just as surprising for this king David to show this kindness to the Ammonites. Why? Because the Ammonites have been Israel's enemies. Right? King Saul had driven out the Ammonites beyond the borders of Israel back in 1 Samuel 11. When Nahash, this same king here, went and attacked Jabesh-Gilead and sought to gouge out all of their right eyes. Brutal. They had a nasty, the Ammonites had a nasty reputation for brutality that included by the Scripture's account of ripping open pregnant young women so that they could kill two generations of Israelites at once. They're brutal, barbaric. So it's surprising to learn here also that King Nahash had shown some kind of hesed to David, right? He says, I'm going to show King Nahash's, King, I'm going to show Hanun hesed because his father Nahash showed it to me. Well, that's very surprising. We can only assume, because the writer doesn't specify how that kindness was shown, that it must have been while David was running from Saul. So, we do know that David hid among the Philistines during that time, so it's not a stretch to think that maybe King Nahash offered David some kind of shelter or sanctuary. So again, I say that showing kindness to the Ammonites is part of David's foreign policy because the Ammonites live beyond the specified borders of Israel as outlined in Judges. Look at the end of verse 3. He says very clearly, the writer acknowledges in verse 3 that the servants of David in fact go where? To the land of the Ammonites. It's their land. It's not Israel's land. So, that's the second point. Third, it's important also to note that this chapter sets up this ongoing conflict with the Ammonites, which will be the backdrop of the next few episodes with David, which includes the David and Bathsheba and Uriah saga, which is coming next week. And so, the main point here is that David intends to show some kind of kindness and loyalty to those who do not deserve it beyond Israel. And this points to a picture of God's kingdom where all, where all the nations will be blessed as they recognize God's chosen King, Jesus. But unfortunately, 
In 2 Samuel 10, that's just not what happens. Which brings me to point two, the rejection of David's kindness. Look at verses 3 through 5. We have some tragic news here. It says in verses 3 through 5, But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each, most likely straight down the middle to the side, and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. So what you have here, when David hears of King Nahash's death, he sends an official political envoy to express his kindness and condolences to a foreign dignitary. Now, it should have just been a simple, formal recognition and exchange, and then back to Israel. That's all it should have been. It should have been business as usual for those who have political obligations and ambassador-like duties. After all, the servants are simply doing what they've been told to do. David's servants are simply doing their job when they leave Israel to go to the land of the Ammonites. But something happens. Instead of receiving David's hesed, instead of receiving his kindness and condolences, Hanun's new political advisors poison the well. They sow a conspiracy theory to their new king. Now listen, I'm sure that they've heard true stories of how David has conquered the Jebusites and taken Jerusalem. They've heard how David has subjugated the Philistines. And as far as they're concerned, as far as they're concerned, the Ammonites are just next on David's list, right? After all, Saul had been their enemy and sought to drive them out of Israel. But there's something else here. They don't simply poison the well with a conspiracy. They take it a step further and they embarrass and shame David's servants. They cut off half their beards, which was a sign of dignity and honor in this culture. So all of you men with shaven faces, shame on you. Shame on you. Good place for an amen. Where are my bearded men at? Amen. All right? Dignity, honor, right? So that was a sign. And then, of course, what else do they do? They cut off their garments at the hip. And you can imagine what that did to these men publicly as they have to walk out of the capital city of Rabbah and Ammon um, back to Israel, right? And even here in this, though, we get a picture of the heart of King David. Notice, that, notice what happens when David hears. What has happened to his men, word gets back to David that they've been greatly ashamed, and David shows them compassion and care. He tells them to stop at Jericho, which would have been the first city they came to as they crossed back over the Jordan River Valley. Um, They came across from Jordan, across from Ammon, back across the Jordan River Valley. You can see Jericho there across from Mount Nebo. They would have went there and allowed, uh, being there um, in Jericho, they would have been able to allow their beards to grow back and have new clothes given to them. But there's a second thing here we see in David. We don't get an inkling here that David is going to respond in vengeance. 
There is no inkling here that David is going to respond in vengeance. He's slow to anger and gives room for repentance. But there's a practical lesson here for us. Lest we remember, we have to allow the Bible to read us as well. There's a practical lesson for us here. Listen, in a broken and fallen world, even our good and best intentions can be misinterpreted. It can happen. It's happened to you in your life where you had the best and the goodest of intentions, and yet other people did not receive it as such. It happens. The point is, David isn't spying. He's offering genuine kindness. Now listen, we cannot always control how others interpret or receive our kindness. That's not our job. That's not our problem. We must leave it in the hands of the Lord. Even we have the best of intentions that are misinterpreted or even seen as evil by those around us, we have to leave that and entrust that to the Lord who, who absolutely will judge the motives of our hearts. John Calvin in his commentary says this, he says, our own good intentions will often be frustrated, and yet God will not fail to approve what we try to do. He says, when we have done our duty, let us not be too clever in figuring out what shall come of it. Let us take refuge in God who knows exactly how to work it all out. So that's one side of the coin that they misinterpret the good intentions of David. But there's another side, and that's the far negative side of this coin. On the flip side, being an overly suspicious and questioning every intent and motive of others, like the Ammonite advisors, is not the way to build unity or trust. Hmm. Think about that. I think it's interesting that trust and loyalty, in order to be authentic, trust and loyalty must work in both directions. Think about this in your own relationships. It's very difficult to trust someone that does, that, that does not trust you. Do you trust someone that doesn't trust you in your relationships? No. If someone doesn't trust me, I find it very difficult to trust them. That's how it works. The main problem in our text is that these people aren't just being suspicious in general, but they're being suspicious of the kindness and sincerity of God's King David. So whether you are on that spectrum, take heed. So that's what we see second. We see the rejection of David's kindness. And third, notice the folly of provoking God's king. The folly of provoking God's king. Look there in verses 6 and 8. It says, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Makah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men and the Ammonites came out and drew up in a battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makah were by themselves in the open country. Now, here's what's happening. So instead of rethinking their foreign policy blunder with David, and instead of sending a peace envoy, what the Ammonites decide to do is provoke David. So they decide to build a collective army of surrounding peoples, some of which are over a hundred miles from Israel. And according to Chronicles 19.6, Hanun paid 1,000 talents of silver 
to gain the services of the Arameans. Now for those that would like to know what that means, that is 75,000 pounds of silver. That's how much they're putting on the line to go get David. Okay? Now, when David hears of this, that there's, there's an army brewing north of Israel, northeast of Israel, David most likely heard of that from the garrison forces that he had stationed north in Damascus back in chapters 7 and 8. He sends Joab with all of his fighting men to the capital city, Rabbah, which is 43 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So, here again, it's not enough that they've spurned David's kindness and shamed his men. Now they're intentionally building an army to invade Israel. So David responds by sending forces to protect Israel from an invading force. Now, it's here we learn something. Joab and Abishai have either intentionally or unintentionally been outmaneuvered. Now, this is a military formation kind of thing for you military guys. Okay? They may have went northeast to basically simply expecting to, to um, deter an invasion of one army. But to their surprise, they find out when they get there that they're caught in a pincher move. There's an or- army to the north of them and an army to the south of them, and they're caught in the proverbial rock, between, being in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. They get there expecting one fighting force, and there's two of them, and they're surrounded. It's at this point that we encounter the only explicit theological content of this chapter. And surprisingly, it's on the lips of Joab. The same Joab who has led David's forces and also caused some incredible political issues for David. Look at verses 9-12. through Look at what happens. It says, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear... He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Assyrians. And the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, here's the theological content, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to Him. May the Lord do what seems good to Him. Now hear me. As we've walked through 2 Samuel so far, we've seen a lot of things. God has told David on many occasions that he would be victorious before the battle even began. In fact, with the Philistines, God Himself even fought the battles. David's men didn't have to do it. So here, Joab and Abishai, they have no such assurance. So in this moment, without a clear word from the Lord, Joab shares with us a a critical truth regarding God's goodness, God's promises, and God's sovereignty. He basically says that, hey, even though we don't know what will happen, we have to fight. We don't know what's going to happen, but we have to fight. And he says to his brother, if you need help, I'll come help. And if I need help, you come and help. He says, but only be courageous for our people, for the cities of Israel, the cities of our God, and let God do what seems best to God. Now, hear me. Tune in here. Tune in. What Joab shares here is truth. 
This is truth on the lips of someone that we should rightly be suspicious of. I don't know if you've paid attention to 2 Samuel. I don't really trust Joab. Joab hasn't been entirely helpful to David. He actually, you know, murdered Ishbosheth. You know, had that happened. Um, he's had some other people murdered. Um, he's provoked some stuff. Not, that, not necessarily a guy that I would trust all the time, but David knows he's a fine military man. He just might not be of great character. But here's the point. Truth is truth. Truth is truth. All truth is God's truth, whether that truth is on the lips of Jesus, or whether it's on the lips of Joab, or whether it's on the lips of Judas. Truth is truth regardless of where it comes from. Do y'all believe that? Does that make you flinch? Does that make you uneasy? After all, God spoke truth through Balaam, a false prophet. God can speak truth through anyone. That's God's prerogative. So here it is. The truth here is that God is good. That's the truth of what Joab says. God is good and will only do what is good and right in His eyes according to His purposes. So, here's my point. As far as Joab is concerned, should the Lord decide for the armies of Israel be, to be defeated? So be it. Should they prevail and win and be victorious? So be it. Either outcome, here's the truth, either outcome will not change the goodness of God. It will not change God's covenant faithfulness or His promises to His people. And that same key truth is what we need in our ever-changing and uncertain world. Listen, what Joab says here is the proper attitude towards all of our own personal battles. Whether those battles be in our relationships, whether those battles be in our politics, whether those battles be in our socioeconomic battles, or whether those be in battles with our health, or battles with disease, and despair, and heartache, and sorrow. Listen, these momentary battles may be uncertain. They often are. Joab doesn't know what's going to happen. These battles may be uncertain, but the eternal covenant faithfulness of our God is never in question. God's goodness is never in question. Do you believe that? Or is God only good when things go well for you? If you only worship when things go well for you, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. What does is, what is, what is the whole book of Job teach us? Though He slay me, yet will I serve Him. Shall we receive good from the Lord only and not also receive evil? He's naked I came into this womb, naked shall I leave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. What? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is never in question. Listen, we might lose a battle in God's providence, but we will win the war because Jesus has already conquered sin, death, and the grave. We have resurrection hope. And then finally, I want you to see, so we see the folly of provoking God's king because that's what they do. Amass an army and go after David. And then notice second, notice fourth, sorry, finally, the folly of doubling down on pride. It was foolish to, to refuse David's king. David's kindness. It's foolish to shame his men. It's foolish to, to go ahead and, uh, you know, go ahead and amass an army 
and now it's foolish to double down on it. Look at what happens in verses 13 through 19. It says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And when Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and, came to Jeru- and he came to Jerusalem, but listen to this, but when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, and they came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, so they doubled down, they go get another army. It says, and when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Now this is a very simple text. Just track with me for like three more minutes. Instead of taking their L and going home, that's vernacular for taking your loss, folks. So instead of, instead of the Syrians and the Ammonites taking their L and going home, what they decide to do is double down, regroup, and amass an even larger force such that King David himself this time joins the battle. So before, David just sent Joab and Abishai. This time, David picks up and he walks out with his men. And Israel decimates the, the armies of the Syrians and the Ammonites and there was peace. There was peace after this battle. Now listen, it was peace at the end of David's sword. Why was there peace? Because the rebellion had been squashed and God's king is now ruling over them. Not by choice, mind you, but by conquest. Now here, let me conclude. What does this mean? What is this a picture of? I want to close by arguing here that this scene in 2 Samuel 10 serves in some way as a prophetic warning about how the people and nations respond to God's kingdom and God's kindness. In this story, listen, all of this could have been incredibly different, could it not? This story doesn't have to be in the Bible at all. It doesn't have to be here. It could be incredibly different. If only they had welcomed and received the king's offer of kindness. If only they hadn't refused it, shamed his men, but more than that, took up arms against God's king. If only they hadn't pridefully doubled down on their rebellion and stupidity. If only they had come to their senses and repented while there was still time. This is very much a prophetic picture of how we must approach King Jesus while His kind offer of forgiveness is still available. Listen, if you're in this room and you do not know King Jesus, you have never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Him, you have never believed the good news of the Gospel by grace, hear me, do not double down on your sin and rebellion. Do not take up arms against God's King. 
Lay them down in repentance and faith. Do not presume on God's kindness. Well, I'll do that later. Listen, I've heard this story my whole life now for 40 years. Well, when, I, when I'm not a teenager, I'll lay down my rebellion and walk with Jesus. Well, you know what happens? Then those folks grow up and they go off to college and they say, well, when I, quit co- when I get out of college, I'll lay my sin and rebellion down and I'll follow Jesus. Well, then they go ahead and they go on with their career and they get married. And then they say, well, well when I get married, I'll, I'll settle down and walk with Jesus. Okay. And then, no, no, no. Well, when I have kids, I'll lay down my rebellion and walk with Jesus. And then they go, no, well, you know, when my kids leave home, I'll lay down my rebellion and walk with Jesus. And then they go, well, you know, when I retire, I'll lay down my rebellion. You see how this story goes? The point is, you know what rebellion begets? More rebellion. If you harden your heart day after day, year after year, you are presuming on God's kindness. You are not promised tomorrow. And there is no guarantee that one day you will be able to make that decision to turn from your rebellion and follow Jesus. The Bible says, today if you hear His voice, do not what? Harden your hearts. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. He says, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. All your rebellion is doing is storing up wrath for that day you will stand before Jesus. So do not store up wrath and rebellion. Repent. Repent. Instead of of continuing in your rebellion, as Psalm 2 says, receive the Son. Receive God's King with joy and rejoicing. Because hear me, this 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 is the warning. There's coming a day when there will be peace with Jesus. Do you hear me? There's coming a day when there will be peace with Jesus because He will rule over all and force everyone to confess Him as Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. You will either do it joyfully in repentance and faith now or there's coming a day when He will put His foot on your neck and you will bow the knee to Jesus. I don't know how to say it any differently. You can continue in your rebellion. There is payday someday. And that's what Psalm, that's what Psalm 2 is a picture of in 2 Samuel 10. Listen, today if you, hear, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe the Gospel while there is still an offer of kindness and grace. Lay down your enmity and humbly come to Christ and be welcomed with Him. Be welcomed not as a slave, not as a rebel, but as a son and daughter. As one famous pastor said, there is payday someday. And I don't know when it will be. But you must be ready to stand before Him one day. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of His Word. Will you pray with me? Father, I ask now that you would speak clearly to our hearts. And Father, that you would show us our need of King Jesus. And Father, may we, as Jesus stands and He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, may we lay down the weariness of our rebellion. The weariness of our sin. And Father, may we come and find peace. Peace with Jesus. Father, we pray this all in Christ's name.
Amen.